Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Paul says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. You're going to see the word carnal maybe in your translation. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Obviously, we who have read Scripture and have any understanding of, of these uh, terms, he's just meaning they can't, they can't digest the, the, the weightier things. We have to spoon-feed them these truths because of their uh, infant mindset. You're still worldly. There is jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? Are you not being carnal? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere humans? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, and God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service, and you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on that. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stone, wood, hay, or straw, and those are two groups of materials that are very unlike. Gold, silver, and precious stone is very durable. Wood, hay, and stubble, you don't want anything that you're going to have to depend on for strength made out of that. Their work will be shown for what it is because the day, how many of you have a Bible where the day is capitalized, D-A-Y? If it's not, go ahead and take your pencil and capitalize it in your Bible. Underline it because it's not just any day. It's not Tuesday. It's not Friday. It's the day. And the significance of that is I can just cut to the chase is there will be a time when Jesus Christ comes, Christ comes back and there will be a judgment, and the coming of Jesus Christ back to this world is often referred to as the day, in short. So when he comes back, he's going to bring a lot of things to light, and it'll be revealed with fire, because symbolically the fire is going to be applied to this pile of wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, and precious stone, and you know you're way ahead of me. What is the fire going to do to these elements? Obviously, it's going to burn the wood, hay, and stubble, and the only thing that's going to be left is gold, silver, and precious stone. Now, for those of you that are lost so far on what this is all about, I'll give a quick explanation so I can then develop this sermon. This is about our service to the Lord 
as you are serving God, the effectiveness of what you are doing for Him equates to either good, endurable product, gold, silver, precious stone, or it's worthless. And it's not judged by what you did, it is judged by why you did it. Your motives. And I can prove that by Scripture when in that day many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, have we not in your name? And they'll begin to enumerate what they did. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Not I don't know you only, but I never did know you. Their defense is we cast out devils. We healed the sick. We did a lot of good things. And Jesus' response is, I know why you did it, and it won't pass the test. So what would be the wrong motive for doing good things for God? Because it makes you popular. Because you get your own television program. Because it pays good. Because you like the applause of men and women. These are things that are bad motivators for serving God. In spite of the fact that what you're doing may be a good thing. So that's what this whole passage reminds us of. And Paul says, it'll be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer, suffer loss, but the builder will be saved. So it's not a judgment where he's going to decide whether you really get to participate in his eternal life plan, but it's going to be a judgment whereby he's going to separate out all the things you did for him and say, perhaps, in some cases, 90% of what you did for me was meaningless. Because your attitude was wrong. And what little bit of pocket change is left is what you did for me that was sincere. Did you do it to be seen of people? Or did you do something in secret, such as ministering to the needy, that nobody had to know what you did? You didn't need the commendation of people. You just did it. But God noticed. And he said, that's silver, that's gold, that's precious stone. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, he will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Here's why I'm excited to preach this sermon for you today. Because you have never read the book of 1 Corinthians to understand it like you're going to understand it today. I'm going to make that promise to you, and if there's anybody that is the exception, then congratulations to you. You're going to learn something if you will stay awake long enough that you have never learned before. Keep your eyes open. Listen closely. What I am sharing with you is vital for your Christian walk. It is vital for you being able to survive the judgment. 
It is vital for you even making it to heaven. It's vital for you being the kind of Christian that God expects you to be. Because the reason I call this compromised Christianity is today and next Sunday, we're going to look at things that people have done in Christianity that they convinced themselves they were okay. And Paul addressed the Corinthians and said, this is not okay. What are you thinking? And I can see in what Paul has addressed to these people at Corinth how today we are doing similar things. And so I reiterate Paul's address. What are we thinking? This is not biblical Christianity. Allow me to develop this this morning. The first problem that I have identified and summarized is the problem of adopting the world's value system. And the key verse actually comes a little bit further down after I quit reading the 18th and the 19th verses, if you want to look at that. And Paul says, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so you can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. And the reason that's my key verse is because he lays this out so clearly that when we make judgments and assessments based on this world's standards, we blow it. And Paul has summarized here what he's trying to tell these people that by the world's standards, you think you're smart. And by the world's standards, they think we're foolish. And so he, in tongue-in-cheek, says, then you should really become a fool rather than be smart by the world's standards. Rather be a fool by by the world's standards, living for God, than to be wise by the world's standards, which is foolishness to God. So they have a problem. But underneath all of the problems that the people at the congregation in Corinth have is the problem of disunity. Now, it's probable that you have read these passages before, the passage about the judgment, the wood, hay, stubble, the gold, the silver, the precious stone. You've read the passage about you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't destroy the temple. He who destroys the temple, him will God destroy. But you've probably missed the context of what this is really all about. So let's look at the context. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and you might want to take some notes for yourself, maybe on a separate piece of paper. There wasn't near enough room on the paper I handed out to you to get all of the stakes I'm going to throw out to you today. But one of the things that you want to understand about the letters to the Corinthians is first of all, in the first chapter and the 10th and the 11th verse, Paul tells to them, I've, tells the uh, Corinthians, I've heard certain people from the house of Chloe tell me things. He has heard reports about these people, and he sits down and he writes them because he's hearing things he doesn't like. And he spends the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians addressing the disturbing reports he hears about this congregation. The first thing he says, I hear people from the house of Chloe that tell me that you are disunited. There is division among you. And from that, you can see this problem of division that is tearing this church up. 
is the underlying factor in all the problems that they have. Starting in the seventh chapter, Paul then says, Now, for the matters you wrote about, that's your dividing line for the first book of Corinthians. The first six chapters are what Paul addresses about the rumors he's hearing. The seventh chapter on, all of the issues included in the seventh chapter on have to do with Paul answering questions they have written to him and asked him. So those of you that know the book of 1 Corinthians know that they asked him, what can you tell us about marriage? And how it relates to if we're saved, should we get married? And what can you tell us about changing our status whenever we get saved? If we get saved as slaves, should we then exercise our rights and desire to be free? He says, if you have a slave when you got saved, remain a slave. They say, well, what about circumcision? If we got saved and we were not circumcised, should we get circumcised? Because the, the, the Judaistic practice of circumcision was really settling heavily into that culture and society. He said, if you got saved, just remain as you are. That's not an issue. Salvation doesn't change all of your social statuses. Now, it'll certainly change your lifestyle. And because it changes your lifestyle, it may change certain things you do and places you work, and people that you are very, very closely and intimately associated with, to what degree you're associated with, and what your recreation is. It can change lifestyle. But just you can't use salvation as an excuse for doing a lot of other things that you just want to do anyway. I got saved, therefore I'm going to divorce my unsaved spouse. Paul would say salvation is not an excuse to do something like that. So he says, and they ask them questions. They ask him questions about, oh, uh, the gifts of the Spirit, 12th chapter, 13th chapter, 14th chapter. They ask him questions about the resurrection, 15th chapter. He's answering all their questions. So let's go back to the first half of this and let's study the rumors. He says, I notice, I hear that you are divided. And if you will read the first chapter, the second chapter, and the third chapter, and the fourth chapter, Paul mentions Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and the division that's happening because these are ministers that came into their congregation. And the people were impacted by each of these. And Paul said, I built a foundation. Somebody came and built on that. We're just co-workers. That's all we are. And he said, you people are polarizing around your favorite minister. And they were so divided. We can see where this is going. They're going to break away and the first church of Paul is going to be down the street. And Cephas Chapel is going to be on the next block over. And Apollos Fellowship. As these people, that's my favorite. Why is Apollos your favorite? Because Apollos baptized me. And it was such a moving experience. And I love that man. And they didn't connect with Paul because 
he didn't baptize them. Or they didn't connect with Peter, Cephas, because he didn't baptize them. Or they got saved under the teaching of Apollos. Or saved under the ministry of Peter. And that's their man. So the congregation comes to church. And they argue. And it's almost like they are using a litmus test as they get into conversations with people and eventually they get around to asking this question. Who were you saved under? Because they want to have an affinity with somebody. Oh, I was saved under Paul. So they leave you alone. They go find somebody else. They want to find somebody they got somebody in common with. Who were you saved under? I was saved under Cephas. Me too! Let's fellowship! Let's leave Paul and Apollos people over there. Let's come over. I'm I'm not being facetious. These people were divided. And Paul says, I hear you're making a big deal out of who is the best preacher. And he said, you're carnal and you're immature. Stop it. This is ridiculous. You're tearing the church up. So we get to this scripture. And Paul talks to them about this Paul-Apollos-Cephas split. And he says, one waters, one sows, only God brings the increase. Then he goes into this passage, strange passage, that we've probably rarely read it in context. And And he says, now, if we lay a foundation and anybody builds on it, they're going to use certain kind of materials. They're going to use gold and and durable materials, silver and precious stone, or they're going to use rotten materials. And then he said, in the day when Jesus comes, he's going to set fire to the materials, and everything that burns up is going to be considered worthless effort, and everything that remains is going to be considered durable And we wonder why, when he's talking to this congregation about a problem they have that he dearly wants to resolve, why suddenly he just goes off and talks to us about what's going to happen at the day of the judgment seat of Christ. And technically, you can write that down. This is not the great white throne judgment. This is the judgment seat of Christ. Why is it at the judgment seat of Christ that he, he suddenly throws this into the middle of the problems that the Corinthians have? And here is the reason he does this. It's because he's explaining to them, you people... Number one, the reason that you cannot make these kind of judgments is because, first of all, it's childish to try and, and, and say, well, I'm, I'm, I, I'm under this preacher here. No, no, I'm under, he's better. It's childish, it's playground, it's ridiculous to have those kind of divisions in the church. Number two, you are trying to make assessments and judgments about things that you don't have a clue how to judge. You can't know if Paul is a better minister than Apollos. You can't know if Apollos is better than Cephas. You are making an earthly judgment, an earthly call of things that are unknowable to you. And the reason it's unknowable is because it will not be revealed until the day that Jesus comes back and he sets fire to it. Then we'll know whose ministry was effective and whose ministry was not effective. You people can't know that. We go to the fourth chapter. I'll splash the scripture up there for your convenience. 
Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. See, he's in the fourth chapter, and he's still talking about this Paul-Apollos-Cephas split. He says, therefore, do not keep on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, the motives of Paul, the motives of Apollos, the motives of Cephas, and your motives. And then each man's praise will come from God. So the time is coming when God's going to settle this. But you people, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you people, knock it off. This is not worth having division over. That's how it applies to the Corinthian church. Here's how it applies to us. This is such a life-changing concept. If we can just get a hold of it. This is the one I want to get planted in your brain, your heart, and your soul today. This is what I want you to take from this church service today because this will change your life if you can grasp it. Sometimes we get it and it slips through our fingers tomorrow. Just latch onto it. Here's the big game changer. You can't know the effectiveness of your service to God until God reveals it on that day. And the reason this is a game changer is because we either get overly inflated thinking how important we are to God, or we get overly discouraged thinking we have no significance for God. And the answer, the scriptural answer is, you cannot judge those things. You don't know if you've been effective or not. The only thing you can know for a fact is if you've been faithful. That's all you can know. But you can't know if you've had an impact or not. And I think this is important for all of us to get a hold of. Because as much as I can preach it, teach it, I struggle with keeping a hold of that every day of my ministry. I keep using earthly gauges and earthly measurements. And my poor wife, as she has to sit there from time to time and listen to me say, Honey, I'm a total worthless slob. I'm meaningless. I have no value in the kingdom. I've worked my entire life. I see nothing. And she pets me and says, there, there, and everything's all right. Which probably clues us in why I keep doing that. <laughs> On a serious note, discouragement does come. As I labor so hard for the Lord... And I become a victim of trying to measure things by earthly standards. I measure it by how many people like me or how many people hate me. I measure it by how many people are sitting in the church today compared to how many were sitting here when I came. I measure it by the finances that we had at one time or the finances we have now. I measure and I measure and the Holy Spirit comes down and he has to bop me on the back of the head and say, you are trying to measure things and evaluate things that you don't have a clue what you're talking about. You can't know it. 
Not until the day that God sets the heavenly match to the pile can you know. And we as a church cannot know our effectiveness. This is the kind of thing that goes on in Christianity. You will meet somebody who used to go to Westside and they'll ask you, how's the church doing? And your response is going to have something to do with how many people are there or how good the finances are. But how do we evaluate how the church is doing? How do you measure who has been truly impacted? How do you measure how somebody is growing in places where you can't see and measure the growth? How can you measure those things? There's certain things we can see. We can see the size of the congregation. We can sense the attitude of people. We can sense the happiness of the people who come here. We can sense the unity and the joy. Those are things we can measure. But how can we really measure? And so when we get off of this thing about trying to measure by earthly standards, we free ourselves. Now, there's probably some of you here today that have even questioned your own value and your own worth in the kingdom. And you play the pity party too. I'm nothing. I've never done anything. Not going to do anything. I'm not doing anything. And so this scripture is for you. You can't know that. I don't know the effectiveness of this church. All I know is I have to keep doing what we're doing. I don't know the effectiveness of our children's program. All I know, Joe, is you've got to keep driving the bus. That's all I know. I can't measure and tell you what effectiveness that is. Maybe someday in the future as people begin to show up in some church somewhere and they say it's because somebody took their time to come pick me up and tell me about Jesus Christ that I am saved today. Maybe you'll see it. But most of it you're not going to know until we're all standing before Jesus Christ on that day and you got this big pile of stuff and you're praying, God, don't let it all burn down to ashes. Then you're going to know whether really anything you did was effective or not. It might have just been the kindness you showed to your neighbor in the name of Jesus Christ. It just might have been the patience that you, that you, that you showed to the, to the cashier at the store when it's been a terrible, horrible day for them. Instead of you uh, getting angry with them because the line is too long and they're taking too long and, and people are slow in front of you just to come up and bless them in the name of... You don't know where you've made impacts. You can't measure it. I can promise you that the gold and the silver and the precious stones that Paul talks about, I can promise you that does not represent megachurches or packed coliseums or stacks of decision cards or television viewership. Those things are not in the pile. God sees things we'll never see. If I were to poll Christians today to name some of the greatest preachers in modern-day Christianity, there are certain names that would come up at the very top. Because this evangelist, it is well known, uh, people would say, I think he belongs at the top of the list. Why? 
because he filled Colosseums and he saw millions saved. And that puts him at the top. How do you know that in God's book that measures out to effectiveness? How do you know? That's an earthly measurement. When some little pastor out in some obscure town, in some obscure church in an obscure town, ministering to an obscure congregation, touched somebody's heart that transformed them by the power of Christ, that they touched somebody else, that they touched somebody else, that eventually saved somebody from becoming a rapist, becoming a drunkard, becoming a dope addict, that eventually rescued a marriage. And it was... It was um, Moody, that was ministered to and touched by a haberdasher that merely ministered Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ to him. And of course, what Moody did in ministry, in touching people, because somebody touched him, you never know, in just ministering Jesus Christ to somebody else, what you have done and how effective you've been. Now, the purpose of preaching is not one-fold, it's two-fold. The purpose of preaching is not just getting people saved. The purpose of preaching is beyond that, getting people to survive the bonfire. My job, as much as I think it would please the carnal to see the church packed, My job is to make sure you, when you stand before God, have something left when the fire is applied to your service to God. That's what I work every week for. That's what I preach every Sunday for, is getting you to survive the bonfire. I have to get you there. I have to grow you. I have to advance you. I have to strengthen you. That's a a big duty. It's a big challenge. But I'm not doing my job if I'm not preparing you for the big test that is to come. So I work hard. I study hard. I labor hard. Now let me fill you in a little bit on church history. It's going to take just a minute, so don't panic. You've heard of the great awakenings in the Americas. You've heard of the first awakening, perhaps, and the second awakening. Maybe you didn't know they were divided. The First Awakening comes along with probably the most famous preacher from the First Awakening is uh, Jonathan Edwards. And everybody here, have you heard Jonathan Edwards? Have you heard the reference to the sermon centers in the hands of an angry God? You've heard that? If you haven't, you weren't listening when I was preaching because I've mentioned it another number of times. Jonathan Edwards was a preaching uh, style that was characteristic of the first awakening that was in your face. The very title of the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, says a lot. He didn't get up there and said, you can have your best life today. He got up there and he said, those of you today who think you're saved, I want you to rethink it today. He made the most saved person question their salvation. When he said that God is angry and he is dangling mankind by a thin thread over the hot flames of hell and that thread is about to break and God's patience is wearing thin and the 
if the thread doesn't break, he's going to let go, and man is going to go plummeting into hell. You had better get down here and make sure of your salvation today, and you'd better tune up in your life and quit living on the fringes and get right with God because eternity is hot, and, it's, and hell is hot and eternity is long, and you can't take the chance. That is the preaching of the first awakening. People who were already saved got saved again. Then came the second awakening. And it was a totally different message. This was characterized by maybe the most famous preacher of the second awakening, awakening Finney. Where Finney just wanted people to get saved. And the requirements were not hard. If you walked down an aisle, if you said a prayer, if you filled out a, car, a card, if you shook a hand, you were saved. And that's it. End of it. The work is done, let's go on and let's leave this pile of saved people in our wake. But they never were challenged to be discipled. They never understood what it meant to live a life for Christ, pleasing unto Him, because I'm saved. And the second awakening has defined revival for uh, America and the world ever since. Let's get them saved. We had a big thing come to our, our Quad Cities uh, a couple of years ago. Rock the River. We're going to get the kids out. We're going to put cards in their hands. We're going to have the cards filled out. We're going to get them saved, and we're going to go down the road. But they've never been back to disciple anybody. And as most of these mass crusades are, where you get a stack of cards, if you try to follow up on them, you don't find anybody who's willing to own up that they signed the card, that they want to talk to you. They just did it on the spot, and I've done it. I've tried to follow up on these cards, and my son has been involved in trying to follow up on these people who sign these cards, and you can go through a pile of cards and not get one person who wants to cooperate with you in going any farther than the fact they signed a card saying they wanted to be saved. Not one will you find that says, where's your church? I want to come. I want to get discipled because we have cheapened salvation so much that now the people who are not saved think they are. So we have total opposites in the first awakening and the second awakening. It's interesting to me that in the 17th chapter of John, Jesus prays a prayer for his followers that remarkably follows the thought of what Paul is talking about in Corinthians. Jesus prayed for his disciples, and the first thing he prayed was, Lord, they're going to have a hard time in this world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm asking those that you have put in my hand, would you please, Lord, let them survive to the end? Jesus never once prayed, nor indicated any desire, Lord, next crusade, I want 10,000. Never once did Jesus pray for a numerical increase. What he did pray is, God, the ones you have given me, I want them to survive. Somehow I've got to get through with them, through to them, that how they live their life has everything to do with whether they're going to make it. I've got to get into their heart so they have endurance. Don't take them out of the world, but God, give them what it takes to endure the hardships they're going to face in this world because they've chosen to follow me. He prayed for endurance and success in their spiritual life. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you gave me from this world, he said. And then he continues and says, now protect them by the power of your name so they will be united just as we are. What? 
He's talking about unity. Something that the Corinthian church did not have, that they had lost, that they had forfeited because of their own selfish desires. And Jesus said, you know what I want, God? I want them to endure, but I want them to know what unity is all about. Because, Father, I want them to know to, how be to be united like you and I are together. Wouldn't it be sweet if they understood how we work together? Unite them like we are united. Watch what he says. Let them be united just like we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that no one was lost except the one headed for destruction as the scriptures foretold. The second thing he prays for, I will come back to that unity in a minute. I'm not done with it. He simply prays, sanctify them, set them apart, God, for your work. Now, Paul's epistles are bursting with his overwhelming desire to see his converts grow and successfully cross the finish line of their spiritual race. He weeps over them. He pleads with them. He scolds them. He encourages them. He warns them. They started out great, but they're not running so good anymore. He guards them like a protective father against false teachers and false doctrines. Not once do we read of Paul asking him, God, give me bigger churches. Give me more people. But he says, the people you gave me, Lord, get them there to the end. Don't let them drop out. That's why the significant part of ministry is getting people ready for the fire. Now, isn't it funny how we measure our effectiveness by quantity and God measures by quality? That unbiblical standard that we can say there are a minority of churches in the Quad Cities because they are huge churches, hundreds of people. The minority of churches are doing great, and the majority of them that are congregations under 100 are just not doing anything because that's the way we evaluate by human standards. Or in the Assemblies of God, 75% of all Assemblies of God churches have an attendance of 100 or less. So 25% are doing somewhat good, and maybe 1% or 2%, the megachurches, are doing great. And all the other 75% of churches are just doing nothing because we use human standards. From an enrichment article, enrichment journal, which is a, uh, a publication within the Assemblies of God for ministers, an article written by Stephen Lim, Associate Professor of Leadership and Ministry at the Assembly of God Theological Seminary, says this, and I quote, On nearly all relevant quality factors, larger churches compare disfavorably with smaller ones. He continues, Christian Swartz came to this starting conclusion after the most comprehensive study of church growth ever conducted covering a 1,000 churches on six continents. And the research and the observations of others, along with my experience, confirm its validity. And I'm going to have some uh, stats up there on the screen if we scroll forward. In spite of fewer people, smaller staff, limited facilities and resources and programs, it says that this study 
shows the average small church produces, number one, better fellowship, better pastoral care, better discipleship, more involvement in ministry, and more persons called into Christian service, and more spiritual harvest than their counterpart, the megachurches. So if you want a megachurch because you like the experience of a lot of people together, that's where you go. But if you want some place that has effectiveness, that you don't judge it by the standards that people judge it, where's the biggest place, but where's the quality of ministry, the stats indicate that when you get into a smaller community, people care more about each other. That I can't do it all my, by myself, so I need your help. So I recruit you and become involved in ministry. And because you become involved in ministry, you fall in love with the Lord and say, I want to answer a call on my life. And here's one of the startling statistics I think is going to knock you out of your pew. Get ready and hold on. Smaller churches are 16 times more effective in evangelism than any megachurch. 16 times. Because when somebody new comes in, we know it here. We care. We reach out. We touch. We grab them. We say, go have lunch with us. We want to get to know you. And here's another shocking statistic. I noticed you didn't flop in the floor that time. I'm going to try it again. Ron Klassen and John Kessler, two experts on small churches, have this to say. A disproportionate percentage of professional Christian workers, including as many as 80% of foreign missionaries, 80% come from small churches. You know why? Because they were taught how to get in and serve the Lord. Because we need you. They were mobilized. Folks, it takes all of us. We all have to get together and we have to work. And that passion for working for God translates into going into ministry for Him. I'm going to stop there. I'll come back to the issue of unity next week. Problem number two next week, losing our spiritual bearings. But problem number one, as immature Christians, Paul addressed the Corinthians and said, you've got a problem with unity and you need to get your act together. But coming out of this problem with, with unity are these fights and these squabbles about who's the best. And behind that is the fact that you think that you can judge things, that you're a good judge of things. But you can't judge. And in summary, if you try to do it, you'll either overinflate yourself or you'll depress yourself. Now, I don't know what is going to happen when God sets fire to my pile. But I can tell you this, if I live with this every day in my mind, if eternity overshadows everything I do, it's going to be a game changer for me. I'm going to suddenly realize that what I do had better be of the right attitude or it's going to be meaningless in eternity. I'm just going to end up impressing a lot of people that are going to die and they won't remember what I did. Or I can impress God because I do it because I love Him. Because the two greatest things is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And if there's any other one that comes anywhere close, to love your neighbor as yourself. And these are the motivators for why we do what we do.